Good evening, everyone. We're happy to see you here this evening. I'm Judy Cooper, the Coordinator of Public Programs. And it's a great pleasure to welcome John Keane to Baltimore and to the Pratt Library. Um, John and I had really met virtually through Reginald Harris, who used to be on the staff here, and so we've, we've sort of become Facebook friends. And when I saw that he had this new book um, published last spring, I said to my friend Reginald, um, we need to bring John Keane to Baltimore, and so it's finally happened. John is Associate Professor and Chair of the Afri African American and African Studies Program at Rutgers Newark College of Arts and Science. He also teaches in the MFA in Creative, in the MFA in Creative Writing Program. A longtime member of the Dark Room Writers Collective of Cambridge and Boston and a graduate fellow of Cave Canem, John has also taught at Brown and Northwestern Universities and other institutions. He's published his fiction, poetry, essays, and translations in a wide array of journals, and he's the author of the award-winning novel, Annotations. Tonight, he's here to read, from his, read and discuss his collection, new collection of short fiction and novellas called Counter Narratives. Please join me in welcoming John Keane to the Pratt Library. So I want to thank uh, Judy for that uh, beautiful introduction. And it's always, I have to say, it's, it was very wonderful to finally meet her. Uh, we had been in contact for years via email through our common friend, Reginald Harris, who I'll mention in a minute. Uh, and um, so it's always wonderful to put a, a face, a lovely face, to a name that you've been, uh, you know, so become so familiar with. Um, I want to thank everyone for coming out this evening. I know it's a Wednesday evening and it's kind of rainy, and so it might be might not be the kind of night that people would want to come out and hear fiction. So I hope you know that uh, you'll enjoy what I'm going to read. I also want to especially thank Judy, um, Faith Edmonds, and everyone at Enoch Pratt Free Library for making the reading possible. It's really an honor to read at this amazing library, uh, one of the jewels in uh, the American Library System. And of course, this is the first time I've ever read in Baltimore, so it's also an incredible honor. And I also uh, just mentioned um, Reginald Harris, so I want to thank him. Uh, he also helped make uh, this reading possible. And um, whenever I think of Baltimore um, in any capacity, uh, Reggie is one of the first people who comes to mind. As Judy mentioned, uh, I have this new collection of stories and novellas uh, called Counter Narratives. And um, I thought what I would do is read a story that sort of takes place not too far away from here. Um, the, the characters actually pass through Baltimore, and there's a mention at one point of whether or not uh, someone actually escaped to Baltimore. <laughs> but uh, nothing really happens in Baltimore. But um, the Washington, D.C. area and Maryland uh, do factor in. So I'll just say about uh, the story, just to kind of set things up. It's set during the very first days of the U.S. Civil War, and uh, the protagonist is a young character, a young African-American free person named Red, 
also, uh, his real name is Theodore, but he's also known as Red. So you'll hear him referred to as Theodore and Red. And he has um, connived a way to get down to work for a scientist who works for the U.S. Army Balloon Corps. Okay, so I'll kind of introduce um, how that starts to happen, and then we'll actually jump down to uh, the theater of war and then to the sort of heartbreaking ending. And the person he's working for, he's at a lecture in Philadelphia for uh, um, people who are interested in science being given by Professor Thaddeus Lowe, who was actually a real famous uh, aeronaut, and he's going to work for uh, another person, Professor Edward Lindy. Soon as he ended, uh, soon as he'd ended, and before the audience applauded, Kearney gestured that it was sherry serving time, unless we were on the coat detail, which I wasn't. I fetched my tray, arranged the glasses on it as soon as they were filled, and slipped into the smaller reception hall where the guests were milling about. I stayed in my assigned post till my tray emptied, then went and loaded up again while Jonathan, who was his brother, and one of the other stewards collected the empties, our routine until Kearney's signal to clean up. As I stood there, my mind alternating between the account of the balloon flight and the thoughts about souping turtles, which I hated to do, all that shell and tendon and soft flesh, up came young Mr. Robbins with Mr. Lindy. I extended them the tray of sherry, and Mr. Robbins acknowledged it with a half-smile as he said to his friend, but they have always been unreasonable. It does not take the most careful student in the history of this country, Nettie, to grasp that every foot we have given them has been turned not just into an L, but a tyrant's mile, especially under Buchanan, and it was on the pretext of last fall's campaign, let alone victory, that they began the process for cleaving us in two. I view this mess as the opportunity to discipline them, one, discipline them once and for all. Mr. Lindy did not say anything at first, but sipped his sherry and stroked his chestnut mustache, nearly as sparse as mine, though he was, I knew, in his early twenties like Mr. Robbins. Another man round the same age approached them, Reverend Hodge, whom I overheard tell someone's guest at my first ship back in February that he had only a few years ago graduated from the Theological Seminary in New Jersey. He said, Peter... Don't you think that if we pursue things as Lincoln appears likely to do, this will all turn out very badly? Speaking not as a clergyman, but as an American, there will certainly be consequences. Mr. Robbins finished off his sherry in a gulp. I accepted his empty glass and passed him another. I glanced at my right and Horatio, perched like me, with his tray almost empty, was watching me closely, as if he was trying to tell me something I should be able to figure out while to my left I saw Jonathan collecting more empty glasses. I looked back at my tray and tried to imagine how many people would be manning and attending the party I was working tonight, if there'd be a band or not or two, like the event I had jobbed two weeks ago out at the estate in Marion. They had carried on so well past dawn that we all had to sleep on the cellar or attic floor till morning, then we helped the man's staff clean up and each of us got two dollars more. Because those people, Dameron said, had so much money, it was like, like the flowing like the Bushkill Falls. And that man, and that man even provided us with the special coaches to get back to the city, so we didn't have to walk or hop the railway. 
Nettie, Mr. Robbins was saying, is playing the taciturn, but he has stronger convictions on the matter than me. Hodge, I assure you, he's still taken with Lowe's lecture, clearer to his mind than mine. But then he is the one who studied such things at the old college. At this, Mr. Lindy nodded. Remember, he's the one who made a pilgrimage up to Cambridge to spend a year studying at Lawrence. The whole time Lowe was lecturing, he was probably transforming the words into equations. Mr. Lindy continued sipping for a bit for a bit before pulling a small bound notebook and pencil from his inner coat, jack, coat pocket. He said, tapping his temple with the book, this is just between us. And leaning in, Mr. Robbins and Reverend Hodge bowing, bow, bowing in close to continued. But if Lowe does get an aeronautic corps going, I'll be the first on his list. I was planning to sign up in any case, but I especially fancy flying in one of those contraptions, even if we end up sailing off to Florida or some other preposterous place. He and Mr. Robbins started laughing, but Reverend Hodge shook his head. None saw the older Mr. Do- older Mr. Robbins, Dr. Cresson, and Professor Lowe approach until they stood right behind the younger trio. Mr. Robbins Sr. offered his round of introductions, and young Mr. Robbins, Reverend Hodge, and Mr. Lindy all praised Professor Lowe's lecture, thanking Dr. Cresson and Dr. Lighty, who I could see was circulating on the other side of the room, for inviting him. They launched into some small crosstalk until young Mr. Robbins abruptly said, pointing to me with his near-empty sherry glass, This boy here pays as much attention, pays as, much attention as we do, don't you, Theodore? And I immediately grew nervous because I had never, ever said a single thing in front of Dr. Cresson beyond, yes, sir, or thank you, sir, and usually only played young Mr. Robbins' game with his friends and the given month's guest. I smiled, raised the tray, and smiled again, but young Mr. Robbins persisted, saying, come on, Theodore, why don't you tell our guest, Professor Lowe, at least one thing you heard him talk about? Mr. Robbins Sr. was now looking at me. Dr. Cresson was frowning and Reverend Hodge's cheeks were deepening to wine. But Professor Lowe and Mr. Lindy looked like they expected to hear me speak to respond to young Mr. Robbins' request. I wanted to call Jonathan over, snare Horatio's attention, even have Kearney bail me out by snatching me away because the whole room appeared to be pausing until I uttered my reply. I said, Professor Lowe said that when he flew the Pioneer balloon last year, watched even by the Japanese ambassadors and their retinue, it rose to two and one-half miles above this city, Philadelphia, and he experienced a mirror effect in the clouds. Then he travel, traveled all the way to New Jersey's Oceanside before that the lower currents brung it back about 18 miles to here. Professor Lowe's eyes scoured my face. They all did. Then he turned to young Mr. Robbins and said, this boy apparently took exceptional mental notes. I barely remember having said that, correct though it is, at all. He clapped, then they all clapped, save Reverend Hodge, who appeared somewhat annoyed. After, Mr. After Professor Lowe patted me on the shoulder, nearly causing me to drop my tray, they dispersed toward another group except young Mr. Robbins, who told me, that was splendid, Theodore. Before you leave today, you will get quite a treat. Mr. Edward Lindy walked back over and looking me straight in the eyes said, like a little machine. I especially appreciated the details because my memory is like pumice stone. To which young Mr. Robbins said, though you can work anything out from first principles, Nettie, which is more than I or anyone else in this room can do. 
Mr. Lindy handed me a carte de visite, which I tucked in my pocket, continuing, If you find yourself seeking work, write me or call upon me, care of that address, and you can join me at the Aeronautic Corps, wherever we are. Young Mr. Robbins patted me on the head, as he usually did, and said to his friend, You know, I'll even put Theodore in a balloon and have him fly himself down there to you, or perhaps in a box to do the same. At which he burst out laughing so hard he had to take out his handkerchief to wipe his eyes. He kept repeating box to Mr. Lindy, who did not appear to find it humorous, as they joined a nearby circle. All the while, I was wondering if Mr. Edward Lindy was the son of or somehow related to Mr. Albert Lindy, the host of the evening's event. And I thought, given how he'd addressed me, that maybe I should say something. Yet we were forbidden to talk to the members or guests unless they spoke to us first. Later, when we were done, young Mr. Robbins, before he left, gave me several crisp bills about which he said, Mr. Edward Lindy standing right there, don't tell a soul. Although I knew Kearney, Jonathan, and the others had seen him give me something extra after we played his game. And I thanked him profusely and replied that I wouldn't. As he filed out, Mr. Edward Lindley, looking, me straight, looking straight at me, once again tapped his temple with his notebook and said in a clear voice, Remember. Okay, so then Theodore figures out a way with his sort of wild-styled cousin to stow away in a train from Philadelphia to Washington, which of course is extremely dangerous because they have to pass through Maryland, which is occupied by federal troops. Uh, and they, they get down there and he is working for, figures out uh, where Mr. Lindy is. And so he's working for him. So now the war is on. One Saturday towards the end of September, General McClellan ordered Professor Lowe to ascend in the Eagle above Fort Corcoran and report on the rebel position south of us near Falls Church in preparation, everybody was saying, for battle. We were all commanded to stay inside the fort's walls to the rear of it, well behind the line of fire. Though Mr. Edwards said the Confederates were at least three or four miles away and we had nothing to worry about, my heart hammered whenever I imagined they might be closer. Worse comes to worse, you can play a bondsman, he said to me dryly, but they will surely slit my throat with the bayonet since our dear president can't see fit to sign off on our commissions. And where, pray tell, would that get us? I wanted to tell him I knew nothing about commissions, but was not about to play, let alone be anyone's slave. But instead, I kept quiet and calmed myself down by helping him and the other assistants ready the telegraph cable and the relay machine and the gauges, which he said had ensured which he said he had ensured were perfectly calibrated, and several flags that Professor Lowe was going to take up in the balloon with him. Soon as the balloon was filled, all the white folks, save Mr. Edward and the receiver operator, and Ulysses took hold of the cables, easing them through the pulleys. Up Professor Professor Lowe rose into the air, slowly, then more rapidly, finally hovering about a thousand or so feet above. Mr. Edward and I reeled out the telegraph wire until Professor Lowe was so far up we could only see the basket's square brown wicker bottom and the immense tan curves and slope of the balloon's globe. Professor Lowe gave a signal for the cables to be tied and staked, though several assistants still held on. Where I sat, along the slope of the real wall's revetment near the telegraph operator, I could see and hear Mr. LeMountain, and there are all these different uh, balloonists who are some were quite crazy, grumbling about something to Mr. Pollan and Mr. Edward approaching me and observing them whispered, that one is the most notorious of vipers. 
I didn't dare reply, but I had seen Mr. LeMountain and Mr. and Professor Lowe and Mr. Wise and the others arguing several times since I arrived. I continued watching them, Mr. LeMountain flailing his arms about, then walking away towards a group of soldiers. As he left our area, Mr. Ezra Allen came over and asked Mr. Edward how the transmission was going. The telegraph operator working at the receiver was writing down the messages as quickly as possible, which Mr. Edward, which led Mr. Edward to say, just dandy, provoking a double take from me. Finally, Nimrod appeared with an older soldier who asked both Mr. Edward and the telegraph operator, do you have the coordinates? And the receiver handed them over. This continued for a while while Nimrod and that white man coming and going, taking the pages with them, till suddenly two orderlies rode up and all around us curtains of gunfire and the periodic boom of cannonade. Professor Lowe is making signals with the flags, though I can't tell what he's conveying, but Mr. Edward says he is helping to calibrate the positions of the guns. But I don't understand it, Mr. Edward repeats, the guns, the position of the guns, when something batters the outer walls of the fort and we all slide down, slide lower down the revetment slope while others lie flat on their stomachs on the ground. The fusillade continues without relent, more balls blast the front palisades while Professor Lowe continues high above making signs with the flags and Mr. Edward is raising his voice that I can barely hear him above the gunfire. We are taking the traitors out and I say, but Mr. Edward, sir, what is Professor Lowe doing with the flags? And Mr. Edward hollers, Nettie, Theodore, Nettie, and why don't you just be quiet for a damn minute? I shut my mouth as the orderlies ride in again and they... We, they and we all watching Professor Lowe, and this pattern persists with fewer and fewer bullets or miniers falling our way, though we can hear the cannons and the field guns firing from our fort and the stench of the gunpowder lingers. Mr. Ezra Allen whistles, everyone, including me, stands and hauls Professor Lowe down, hauling on the cables as he releases the gas, descending until the basket gently yet firmly hits the ground. All of us, save Mr. LeMountain, who has disappeared to who knows where, applaud him as another military orderly arrives with a report from the generals. After that, there weren't any more close scrapes, and we spent most of our time in the Navy Yard in Washington, where Professor Lowe and the rest were assembling a series of balloons, as well as a balloon boat, as Mr. Edward called it, to carry and tether several of them at once up and down the Potomac. One afternoon, I went to run errands for Mr. Edward, dropping off his post, and, though I didn't tell him, mine. A letter to Jonathan and my mother, one to Horatio, and on an impulse, one to Rosaline, who is his sort of little girlfriend, recounting the vague outlines of my experiences thus far. I was also buying his favorite tobacco, Lilienthal's, coffee and tea, some lead, some lead tin solder, and a few other things from the general store, taking good care to avoid any trouble. I checked my watch after I had left the main post office, and I saw I had some free time, so I decided to head up to where Dandy, which is his cousin who got him down there, and me had stayed when we first came to town to see if anyone had seen or heard from him. I retraced my steps back there, straight up 7th Street through Mount Vernon Square, past the market and the shops, every street, every tree, every building, both strange to me and yet so familiar, to 9th and Q where I saw the shack so tiny and filthy, it was hard to imagine that seven or more of us had slept and eaten in there at the same time. As I approached it, I saw a woman I recognized, though her back was turned to me. Her name was Mary Agnes, and she had arrived just before I left. She was standing outside the front door. How do, miss? I called out to her, asking if she had seen or heard from Anthony Smith. 
that name made her whip her head around towards me and snap, who the hell asking? I answered, his cousin. I even stayed here with you, Mary Agnes. Don't you remember when we first came to the city? And before I could finish the sentence, she was shrieking, y'all, y'all come out here right now. It's one of them northerns that run a game on us. And I said, no, no, I didn't run no game on you. And she yelled even more loudly, you're going to pay for what you did. And I said, no, you got the wrong person. Ask Cyrus, because I had even brought them food and left them money. But two men, both twice my size, came scrambling from the shack. And across the street, I saw another wielding a carving knife. And I took off running, coiling my bag around my hand so I didn't drop it. And cut a left on what I guessed was pee. And then just zigzagged across the street, even hearing a gun go off behind me three times, but didn't stop running all the way to Mount Vernon Square where I darted behind one of the stalls and dropped to my knees to catch my breath and examine myself quickly to make sure I hadn't got shot. Only then did I consult my pocket watch. When I peered out at the street, I didn't spot anybody anybody chasing me, but I thought I should be careful, so I turned my coat inside out and tied a kerchief around my head, figuring as I did figuring as I did so that I ought to take the roundabout way back while also realizing that Mr. Edward was going to be cross if I returned too late. I started running again, but nevertheless, the evening was already already filling the sky by the time I reached the Navy Yard grounds. Okay, and the final little section involves the balloon again. It's the ending. The next few days, I undertook my usual tasks, including trips to purchase twine and paintbrushes. I also assisted Ulysses and the others in rigging the bigger balloons Professor Lowe was putting on his boat, or aircraft carrier, as Mr. Edward called it, which would soon venture down the Potomac. Every chance I could, I reread the letter from Jonathan, struggling not to drift off into a daydream and end up injuring myself with a snapped cable or dropped tool. Mr. Edward continued his presentations his preparations but an hour before mess he asked me to take dictation for a brief letter with the quill and ink to his former professor at the lawrence scientific school dr joseph levering about possible study in berlin to stop thinking about philadelphia and the letter and my family i engaged in my count-ups and countdowns and even convinced mr edward to play several rounds of takeaway using twigs he winning three games and i too It was a relief that night that Nimrod joined Ulysses and me for supper, even staying over till almost almost till next morning's bugle call. A few nights later, on the eve of the next early morning observation, I could barely fall asleep at first and tossed fitfully, hearing what sounded like thunder, though I reckoned it was in my dream. But it wasn't exactly a dream, nor a nightmare. I couldn't see anything and attempted to speak it, describe it to myself, but I couldn't. My mouth wouldn't open. There was a hand or my hands over it, on me, holding me, heavy as an ironclad. Down, I was sinking down into the earth, and I fought whoever it was, holding me hard as I could. I fought them off and leapt up, yawning. No one was there. Ulysses was still curled under the blanket, snoring. I kept yawning. As I scrubbed myself in the cold October morning air, before I headed to where Mr. Edwards slept, I fished out my letter, reread it, at the same time wondering where Dandy was, somewhere here in Washington and Baltimore. Had he gone back there, back to Philadelphia? Had he ended up in Buffalo or Boston, wondering how I could see him again, send him a note. I collected Mr. Edward in his bag, heavy with various items, and walked him to the balloon. No one else was there. 
The sky was as gray as nice, and the balloon inflated the night before was twisting about at the neck in the chilly wind whipping around us. I considered asking whether he would be ascending today, but he preempted me with, Ah, well, Professor Lowe hasn't arrived yet, and then the wind is blowing northeast, north-northeast, or maybe it's southeasterly, and then I need to check the altimeter, which should be perfectly calibrated, and also ensure the telegraph wires are still connected. He handed me his notebook but did not move. He remained where he was, staring at his bandaged right hand, patting his pockets, lifting his left hand to his face, and said, Theodore, do you have my pipe and glasses? I shook my head and then felt around in the, great, the, the full bag I had brought from his room. He and I had packed a great deal, but neither the pipe nor the glasses were in there. Mr. Edward, sir, I can, I can go back and look for them, I said, and proceeded to head to his tent, but he stopped me with his good hand and said, You've never been in the balloon before. When you drop my bag in there, why don't you make sure the altimeter is lashed, the main valve is tight, and the telegraph wires are connected? I stood there looking at him since what he said made no sense. I wasn't supposed to go anywhere near the baskets, but he continued, you know exactly how they're supposed to look. Of course I had wanted many times to climb in the balloon basket, had even thought of hiding in there the first time Mr. Edward was, was to go up, but on the other hand, I knew my doing so was forbidden. Most of the white men could not set foot in that basket, and certainly neither Ulysses nor I had permission. I had never defied him, but I said, Mr. Edward, sir, I don't think I'm supposed to get near that basket. Professor Lowe especially might get very cross. I'll gladly go get your pipe and glasses. He assured me, Neddy, because he loves to be called Neddy and not formally, his formal name. And Professor Lowe won't mind your being in there for a second or two. Really, Theodore, I'll be right back. I think I know where I left them. I nodded, but nevertheless hesitated and began to say, Mr. Edward, we can wait till you come back. But instead, watching him walk back to his tent, I took slow but steady steps towards the basket and climbed in. I set his bags down, reviewed the altimeter, which was securely knotted, and the valve tight as a bald fist. But when I bent to inspect the telegraph wire, I tripped and fell against the edge of the basket while out of the corner of my eye I see someone, a white man, darting from behind a shed towards where the rest of the balloons are lying in assembly and I experience this strange sensation like the ground is moving, like time is slowing and I see Mr. Edward, bespectacled pipe in his mouth, advancing towards me, running but not running, yet simultaneously moving farther away as he's crying, Oh my heavens, no! Theodore and my first impulse after realizing I don't understand what is happening is to scream as the basket hooks upward to my left then my right my jaws snapping open my eyes beating on the pale pattern and elaborate housing of the vast silk globe above me I want to scream back at him at anyone who's nearby that I'm up in the air I'm flying I want to holler even if just to myself about how it's not at all like I had imagined how my weight is dwindling to nothing how gravity is flipping upside down time stalling to a standstill, how my stomach is twisting itself into tiny knots catapulting themselves into my throat. And Mr. Edward, I can hear him clearly now, is screaming, 
who cut the cables? Oh, stars, somebody cut the cables. Theodore, and I feel something jerking on one of the cables and peer over the edge to see him trying to hold on with his bad hand. And here come Professor Lowe and Ulysses and Mr. Steiner and Mr. Starkweather and Patrick, almost all the others. They are jumping, reaching for the ropes, and Ulysses is hollering, Jump, Red! I'll catch you, little brother, jump! And Mr. Edward is crying out, No, Theodore, tie yourself to the inside of the basket and don't stand too close to the edge. I'm thinking to myself, this really is flying. I'm flying. The wind humming against the balloon surface and the basket, and I notice for the first time beside me a metal flask, which may or may not be empty, two white flags attached to the metal poles, the length of my forearm bound by knotted wax cording, as well as the rope descending from the valve over the balloon's closed hole, and I hold onto one of the coils of additional rope and wire ringing the rest of the basket walls, and remember to tie myself to the hook in the floor, and I remember to check the altimeter and telegraph transmitter, and from the bag grab Mr. Edwards' notebook, though I remember pretty much everything he has been saying about aeronautics and balloons and flying since we got here, while all around me the sky is churning between silver and mother of pearl, and below the rigid grid of the federal capital, circling it on all sides, verdant countryside, the hills and meadows, the farms and homesteads, the bends of the Oka River, some of it Virginia and some of it Maryland, one direction straight to Pennsylvania and the other to the Carolinas, one to the Atlantic Ocean and the other to the Bull Run and Blue Ridge Mountains. I can barely hear Mr. Edward, Ulysses, and the others calling out to me now, their voices growing ever more distant, Theodore, Theodore. And I sit in the center of the basket as it grows colder, knowing now that I am tethered to nothing at all. The basket and me now in a free float, a drift, a soar. And I stand and remember, can see out there all the forts and encampments and troops massed like tumors along the riverbanks, the ramparts and howitzers armoring the hills, the works teething at the edge of the foliage, the terrible danger snaking through the vast green and brown rolling land. And I feel something not quite fear and not quite elation. I can't put a name to it. I try to utter it, but cannot. I place my hand on the valve string, then reach over and check that the sandbags are in place, at my winter coat, feeling not only the weight of my papers and my pocket watch, but my heart, when my throat finally relaxes as if something sound will issue from it, to say Mama, and Jonathan, and Horatio, and Nettie, and Ulysses, and Nimrod, and Daddy, Zephaniah, Zephira, Lucius, Professor Lowe, President Lincoln, Handsome, somebody, help me, but only the gas hisses in ascent as I pull on the string, as I open my mouth even wider. And remember to thank you. We're taping this for podcasting, so we'd like for you to. Okay. Thank you very much. Very good presentation. Very good reading. Um, I had a. Okay, I had a question. Um, I take reading literacy very seriously, mm-hmm. and I wanted to know today. As I'm thinking about our young people; they're mostly looking at some are looking at video games, either playing it on an app phone or mm-hmm. wherever, or doing anything like this. 
And I wanted to know, what can we do to reach out to our young people, encourage them to, to, to read the, like these novellas or other serious works, mm-hmm. picking up vocabulary and other skills? Um, there, there's only so much you can learn on a video game, particularly, mm-hmm. moving shapes and sizes, but words means a lot to a lot of people. Mm-hmm. So what can we do in our community, and what are you doing at Rutgers University, for example, to encourage literacy, both young and old alike, as, as a matter of fact? Thank you. That's a wonderful question, and uh, I think a pressing one. Um, one of the things I think that's absolutely important is, you know, um, supporting any kind of programs that get uh, books of all kinds into people's homes when they're very small, uh, any kind of programs that, you know, offer um, kind of reading enhancement and enrichment for young uh particularly children, um, in school, at libraries, at community centers, any place where it's possible to be able to read to children and, uh, you know, kind of share with them the beauty of literature. Uh, often, you know, when, if, when you're young, if you get hooked on books, or even if not, you, not, you don't get hooked on books, but, you know, you sort of uh, get a sense of the value of books and of, you, of enjoyment, right? You know, uh, if something is thrilling enough, uh, that sticks with you for a lifetime. Um, I would say... At every other level, right, as we sort of go up the educational ladder, it's important to, to, to fight so that, you know, um, uh, people, people have access to books, um, uh, you know, and that there are various kinds of programs to uh, engage them. One of the things that we do at Rutgers Newark is um, there are several high schools in Newark, uh, um, I think, that are predominantly uh, black and Latino. And though the students actually read the same books, and these are you know these aren't uh, young adult books, but they're actually reading a lot of the same books that uh, the undergraduates and graduate students are reading. And then when the writers come through as part of our Writers of Newark series, they actually get to hear the writers and uh, meet them, and in some cases ask questions. You know, so last actually uh, last night I was at a reading with uh, Rachel Eliza Griffiths, the amazing poet and photographer, and Karan Desai, who won the Booker Prize, and. And at that reading were all these great high school students, you know, who were really, really interested. And these are not, you know, kids that usually have the opportunity to go to a reading at a university and hear authors like this read and speak. So, I mean, all kinds of programs to encourage reading. I mean, uh, uh, getting books to people in prison. I mean, everything we can do to encourage reading, I think, is absolutely important. But it has to start when children are young as much as possible. Two questions, and I enjoyed the reading thoroughly. How did you come upon the title, Counter Narratives? And then the story that you read is something that you would never expect because you cover flight, which Mm -hmm. also is freedom, Mm -hmm. and you do it from the young guy, and you give him integrity and curiosity. Mm -hmm. And so if you could just talk a little bit about both that as well as the whole thematic as to your book and novellas. So to, to... Describe the title of the book or to sort of summarize it. I wanted to tell stories that, and of course, yeah, I think Tony, well, let me just, let me back up. I think Tony, Morris famous, Tony Morrison famously said that she wrote the books that she wanted to, she didn't see on the shelves that she wanted to read. And that's been one of kind of my guiding principles. I mean, of course, I love Tony Morrison. Uh, and I love the work she and so many other great authors have written. But I wanted to sort of think about American history um, in a certain kind of way that, that uh, came at it from unusual angles. So uh, I lived for about uh, 10 years in Boston, in, uh, in New England, and um, 
then shortly after that, I left there. I lived in Charlottesville, Virginia. One of the things I was very aware of when I lived in Charlottesville, we were talking about this earlier, was, I mean, slavery is, you know, you know the history of, of slavery is all around you, but it's almost invisible in Boston. And most people don't realize that all of the northern states, I think, except for Vermont, uh, had legalized slavery. So one of the first stories that I wrote here was a story set in Massachusetts. I wanted to sort of think about what would it be like to imagine slavery at the time that the United States was coming, you know, freedom was really in the air. So that became the first story that I wrote, and that sparked uh, really all the others. Uh, so anyway, so the, I see them as these narratives that counter the kind of master narratives that we uh, tend to get uh, in school, in uh, books, in uh, popular culture, um, but 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 with some you know drama and some you know some thrills along the way. Um, this story sort of bewitched me because I remember hearing about the Army Balloon Corps, and I thought they had hot air balloons during the Civil War. And let me ask you: Did anyone else know that the, that these existed? Oh, you did. Okay. I mean, it's really interesting. Whenever I mention this to people, they're just like, "What are you talking about? <laughs> this is just totally crazy." They had hot air balloons, yeah, and they did. You know, they did. Uh, and actually, Abraham Lincoln was very supportive, but a lot of the Union generals were not because they thought this was just this outlandish uh, attempt to, you know, uh, suck up Union uh, funding while they had a war to, to fight. But anyway, so I, I did a little reading about this. And then I kept thinking, most of the things I was reading had to do with the, the sort of one of the main figures, Thaddeus Lowe. And I thought, well, uh, who would have been doing a lot of the work um, to make these balloons ready to go up in the air? And so that led me to kind of imagine this character, Theodore. And then I thought it would be really interesting if, as opposed to the usual movement of people going from the south and border states to the north, what if this young free person who actually you know, was really quite sharp, really wanted to put himself in a certain kind of danger. And so I kind of allude to that in one of the sections where his mother was you know, just saying, you're crazy. You know, everybody's saying, what are you doing? You, know, you don't want to do this. It, this was, of course, before uh, uh, there were officially black troops. So anyway, so that gets him going. But, and so the story, as you heard, ends with him in the balloon that's been, the tethers have been cut, um, not to punish him, but soaring kind of really over Virginia in the wrong direction. Uh, I enjoyed your reading. Thank you. Um, you made reference to the first part of this is you mentioned slavery in the North, which is say, counter, kind of counterintuitive. Mm -hmm. Usually think of it in the South, in the North, Free, but we know that's not necessarily the case. You, the story of Theodore occurs 19th century. Mm -hmm. In looking at this, it says to present. What is the present part of this book? Uh, what, what, what is the storyline or the story arc that, that describes the, the present and kind of pulls it, I guess, from early to... 19th century to present. Okay. Well, it's sort of fascinating. I think it's happening on two levels. Uh, so on the one, one hand, the, most of the stories, sort of the, there are 13 stories, and so 12, I believe 12, uh, follow the trajectory of, from early modernity, 
So the very first story is set in, I think, 1609. And the last one of that first is to, to mod, what we, I guess you could call modernism, the 20s and 30s. Uh, with, with, with one story with Langston Hughes, and there's another story with the famous Brazilian, his sort of parallel in Brazil, Mario de Andrade. And then there's a very contemporary story set in Africa. So that kind of represents a culmination of those earlier stories, but a sort of sense of, right, of how all of the sort of positive ideals of, of those earlier stories can, can go wrong, right? Um, so... So that sort of brings us into the present. I mean, I think what I originally wanted to do, I, I wanted to have a book that was like maybe double the size, uh, and then I, you know, it was not <laughs> feasible to finish it, and the publisher was like, "This is already a big book of stories." So, but I think I think that thematically, the you know, they 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 kind of. Uh, uh, ring certain kind of changes to sort of fill the the collection out, um, but eventually I'd like to do stories that come through you know the sort of civil rights movement up until today. Now the other I would say the other aspect of this is sort of fascinating is every so often you know there'll be something publicly that will happen that sort of to me resonates with something in here. So one of the first stories in the book uh, is called uh, an outtake um, from American American origins of the the uh, outtake from the ideological origins of the American Revolution. Um, and it's about this young person, again, on the eve of the revolution, who just wants to be free. And uh, it's about uh, black bodies and the kind of the limits, limits of you know, the way that the black people, black bodies are sort of limited, um, even as we have this sort of discourse of freedom. And, you know, when we, when we, I was thinking about like, you know, um, the various tragedies like the Michael Brown, uh, um, you know, uh, tragedy, uh, Eric Garner, um, uh, Freddie, Freddie Gray. I mean, all of these things, you know, uh, that there, there is this way, Sandra Bland, there, there's this way in which some of the things that I'm kind of talking about in the past have a continuity with what's happening in the present. And I wasn't even thinking of that. But it is. It sometimes it just seems really kind of strange to me. I'll go back and think about this, or someone will say this to me. You know, this is sort of weird. You kind of, you're talking about the forelife of all this stuff that is happening. So in a sense, I feel like that there's a presentness in this in these past narratives that's that sometimes does surprise even me. Um, I think um, I'm a history major in college. I think that the. Uh, what do you call the hot air balloons? Was a French invention in 1780 something? Yes, yes. I remember PBS for glancing at it by turning the station. I happened to see it. Uh, but I think didn't the, uh, did did the North free the slaves officially, or did they just die out there? Because they, they you mean the, the northern states? The northern states, yeah. Yeah, I think most of the northern states actually, uh, by, in, by various uh, means, uh, freed. Uh, most of their enslaved people. But the fascinating thing is that, for example, <laughs> New Jersey, I shouldn't laugh when I say this, but, you know, cause New, nothing bad about New Jersey, but New Jersey actually had enslaved people up until the end of the Civil War. Not a lot, because I think officially the state said, you know, this is over, but people still had, so it wasn't really until it was the 13th and 14th Amendments. Well, in Maryland, Missouri, Kentucky, exactly, the border states, right, they all had, it took the Civil War, really, to end it there, right, because remember when Lincoln, uh, with the emancipation, one of the things I always say to my students when I teach uh, Intro to African American Studies is the students, when we get to the Emancipation Proclamation, they think, oh, my God, Lincoln freed the slaves, and I say, no, Lincoln, 
Right. He, it was it was important. It was very important what he did. But he uh, basically was the commander in chief of a military that, you know, with the enslaved people themselves, free ended slavery because, of course, the Emancipation Proclamation. Uh, basically, I think only uh, uh, is supposedly right in the uh, you know had uh, jurisdiction in the southern states, which of course meant nothing because of course they were a different country. So yeah. Um, is your book in Barnes and Noble, the bookstore in Towson? I think so. I hope so. <laughs> I hope so. They reviewed it, so yeah, they they gave a good review. So I hope it's there. So um, if I go there, I can buy it or... Yeah, I think so. I think so. Yeah, they're selling it outside too. Okay. And another, one more question. Sure. Do this book, is it overseas? Is it going overseas to other schools, you know, Korean? I hope so at some point. <laughs> at some point, you know. That's sort of, it's, it's a little out of my control right now. I mean, I think that so far, so fascinatingly... Um, I think there is uh, maybe an Italian publisher that's interested in it. Um, and I think the publisher, they simultaneously publish the books. So it's in Canada, and I believe it's in, you can buy it in Great Britain uh, and Australia. But uh, in terms of other languages, so far, no. Mm hmm. Yeah. But I would say, just I'm going to put in a plug for small independent bookstores, right? Sometimes they may have discounts, and we want to keep them alive, so. Right, and the Ivy Bookstore, Bookshop is outside in the hall selling copies of the book. Yeah. Um, and also, you can check it out from the library. So we have copies of the book in our collection. So um, I just wanted to, I had a question about um, your research. So much of this is based on you know, on, on real facts, real mm-hmm. history. So t- you must read a lot of history. Well, I love history. One of the things that I tried to do with, I'd say, with all, I would say most, um, but really it was all, all the stories was that no matter how much I read, no matter how many, you know, how much uh, factual material I collected, um, I tried at a certain point to set that all aside and to write from the character's inside out right so to try to get into these characters so for for this story you know there were there were moments where i had theodore doing certain things in philadelphia and then you know so that i wouldn't make a complete fool of myself i went back to check to see you know if i was totally wrong in some cases you know it was just a kind of leap a a, a correct imaginative leap but in other cases it was just Outlandish, <laughs> so I said, I don't want some Philadelphia historian to come, or, you know, or some, some someone who knew what Washington was like. And you know, of course, I think you're always treading on dangerous ground when you start to write about the Civil War because there are a lot of Civil War aficionados. But but I you I I tried to do the imaginative work f- as much as possible, and then do a little bit of fine tuning to make sure I got the facts right to the extent that that was necessary. No, I don't. I don't. I try, but I try to write down any idea I have in a little notebook. So, uh, thank you for the reading. Thank um, you. I think you're kind of touching on what I my question was, mm-hmm. which is your writing process. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you start? Like, are you a morning person? Evening? Is there a special place you go? Like, 
Well, I usually write, uh, I used to write uh, at night, um, or in the evening at least, after uh, I would eat and uh, you know, try to not watch TV, and sometimes I write late into the night. It sort of changed uh, as uh, my teaching schedules have changed, I've gotten older. Uh, but fascinatingly for me, this, this book, I wrote a, a huge portion of it at the New York Public Library. And uh, they have this. They have these little rooms that they don't tell people about. But and you don't. You know, they don't give you any money. But you you ask and you submit an application. And if they select you, then you can. You have a little carol, and you can store books. And so it was. It, there was a certain point where um, I had been. There was one of the stories, the longest story in here, uh, Our Lady of the Sorrows. I was trying to write this story, and I had lost. Uh, all of a sudden, my computer crashed, and I lost like about four or five stories, between four and five stories. It was it was awful. I had, but I had the notes, and um, so there was something about going to the library and seeing all these other people sitting and working, and it was quiet and it was intense, and something just kicked in, and I finished that story and another story. And another story. So then I would, you know, I'd go to the library during the day and write. Uh, and this is usually during the summer, um, or on the days when I wasn't teaching, I'd go into the city. And then, uh, then of course at night I'd do some revision and, and stuff like that. And then at a certain point, things just really started to speed up. So, but it, for me, it, it, it's it's whenever I have gaps of time, you know. And it, it, before I was actually teaching, when I worked uh, full time. I used to write a lot of poetry because I could write, go out on my lunch break and write poems or read, read a little bit and then write a little bit. Uh, and then, you know, when I had more time at home, I would come back and put stitch stuff together. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, and there's, there are a lot of it. And of course, Franco Harris famous lunch poems, too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. All inspirations. I love your um, your prose style. I mean, it's Thank you. Um, beautiful to read and somewhat formal and very, very descriptive. Um, and I was just make, always makes me wonder who you were, you influenced by, or you know, is there a writer that you know particularly, you know, you, you not that you um, model yourself, but unconsciously, so there are writers that you read over and over that just sort of seep into, you know, what what you're writing. Oh, there's so many. I mean, you know, um, well, I mentioned one, of course, I've had the pleasure over the years to see her read a number of times, Toni Morrison. I think she's, you know, really quite extraordinary. Uh, and I had, uh, well, I'll just mention some of the people. I, so I had Ishmael Reed, the writer, as a teacher when I was a senior in uh, college. And he, he was an influence uh, even back when I was a child. Um, when I was in graduate school, I had a opportunity, the opportunity to take a class with E.L. Doctorow, who, who, for whom I wrote the first story in here, and uh, and he was uh, and continues to be uh, a huge inspiration. A writer like Gail Jones, who would do these really interesting things with history uh, and uh, myth, uh, was a huge influence. I mean, and then of course a major American writer. I mean, like Faulkner. You know, I love William Faulkner. You know, so I mean, I think there's like this is huge. Right? I mean, writers from the Caribbean. There's so many writers from the Caribbean. Writers from Africa. You know, European writers. I mean, that that have been um, major influences. So I feel like all of that is kind of woven into uh, the prose, and some of it is more. 
I think some of it, some of the prose is more casual and some of it is more formal. But the other thing I wanted to do, for example, with this story was to try to capture those different registers of language um, that sort of reflected that time, but that also felt of today. So. Thank you. You made a um, comment about the boxcar, uh, the shipping yourself, which right. is a historical reference of the guy that shipped himself, I guess, is Richmond, Virginia or something up to D.C. Uh-huh. Uh, also, you can hear your poetry oh. when, you're, when you're reading, when you read the short story. Mm-hmm. How has poetry influenced the way you write novels or narrative? Well, poetry is incredibly important. And uh, I mean, I, I think I wrote poems before I wrote, ever wrote stories. I still write poetry. And uh, my second book was a book of poetry with a, a visual artist. Um, I tr- I, one of the things I had to sort of force myself to do with this book, though, was to not let <laughs> the poetry start to take control. I mean, but there's, there's, so there's, you know, there's obviously very lyrical passages. But the, the fascinating thing is there's certain moments here, and, and some of the, the uh, reviewers have noted this, where the language itself picks up a real kind of, like, almost kind of rhythmic force, and sort of pulls forward. And I'll just, if, and now I'm not going to read the whole thing, I just want to read you this, this is the opening to the first story, and I actually had the, an idea of what was going on here, but then when I heard it read aloud, I mean, I read it aloud, and you know, sort of heard it, I realized, oh my God, this is poetry, but it is fiction. Okay, so this is just the beginning of the very first story, Manahatta. The canoe scudded to a stop at the steep rocky shore. There was no slip, so he tossed the rope which he had knotted to a crossbar and waited with a pierced plumb square just larger than his fist forward into the foliage. Carefully, he clambered towards a spray of greenery the fingers of the thicket and his underbrush clasping the soles of his boots, his stock and calves, his ample linen breeches. And it just goes on like that. So, and, so, and part of what I realized, I sort of was thinking when I was writing this was, this, this is like the first story, it's the originary story, it's almost like language putting itself together. But it's also, as you said, poetry. <laughs> poetry basically trying to insert itself or assert itself over the prose. Let's make this the last question so we have time to. Um, will you write another book? Or will you continue this? Is it a continuum? Or is this this? Well, I do have, I, I'll say this, I do have several. You, I mean, you know, knowing that the holiday is coming up. Will you write another book for the holiday or the first of the new year? Well, no, that's a a good question. I mean, I I actually, I I do have several book projects underway. And and one of them has a kind of historical element. And the other one is more uh, speculative fiction. So I hope to finish one of those, one of those two sooner rather than later. And I hope it'll be a perfect gift. uh, The other one will be a perfect (laughs) gift to give. Yeah, for for the holiday. Thank you. Great. Thank you so much, John. Let's give him another round of applause.